And I'm so glad that you are with us today, and so glad that uh, uh, we are going through the book of Acts still. I know that some of you are uh, thinking, wow, we've been going through the book of Acts for like a year and a half. That's exactly right. Uh, it's been about a year and a half uh, since we started. We took a few breaks, but um, we are, are, are getting ready to wrap it up. We're in chapter 26 today. Uh, there's two more chapters after this. Uh, but I think there's some important things even to learn today, uh, some things that maybe uh, you'll say a little bit of deja vu because they seem a little bit familiar, as Paul has some familiar uh, experiences from time to time in different cities. Uh, but I think there are things that God allows us to see over and over because he wants to drill them into our minds and into our hearts. And so uh, I don't apologize for that. I don't apologize that uh, you come to church and, and maybe hear uh, something that you've heard before uh, because uh, it's not you know, our job to wow you every week with new information, uh, but it's our job every week to uh, provide the word of God to inspire us, to help us, to grow us, so that we can continue to live for Christ. So uh, we're going to pick it up in uh, chapter 26, and this week or we're going to talk about Paul uh, before King Agrippa. Before we get there, I want to give you just a little bit of background in chapter 24 and 25 to set the stage, otherwise you won't kind of know what's going on, and I know some of you haven't been here the last two weeks, so I want to let you know uh, kind of where we're at. In chapter 24, uh, Paul went to trial before the governor Felix in Caesarea. And uh, Felix was an interesting guy because he was very friendly towards the gospel. If you remember, he kept Paul under house arrest for two years. Uh, he didn't actually try him, uh, but he, he uh, put him in the house arrest for two years because really the bottom line is he wanted to keep having conversations with him about the gospel. And so they had that for two years, but then actually uh, uh, after he considered the gospel for such a long time, he left office and we don't ever see uh, that the governor Felix came to know Christ as a savior. Then in chapter 25, the new governor comes on the scene, Festus. It's probably hard to get these two guys mixed up, Felix and Festus. Uh, but uh, Festus comes into power uh, as the uh, new governor, and he very quickly is approached by the Jews. Uh, they come and demand to be heard on the issue of Paul because uh, it seemed that uh, Felix was kind of dragging his feet, uh, not really doing much uh, to execute Paul as the uh, Jews wanted to happen. And so they went to Festus to get that done. Uh, they wanted to actually bring, uh, ask Festus to bring Paul to Jerusalem for trial, and the reason was they had an ambush on the road prepared for him. They were planning to ambush uh, Paul and whatever group was being sent with him uh, to kill him. Uh, but now the Jewish king, Agrippa, was actually coming to the, uh, whatever it is they called it back then, inauguration celebration for the new governor, Festus, coming into power. And so King Agrippa uh, goes to this kind of party-like celebration thing with his uh, uh, sister wife, Bernice. Now, he, he wasn't uh, a Mormon where he had sister wives, but it was both his sister and his wife. Uh, and so um, Agrippa, that's a whole another story we'll get into some other time, but it was a very incestuous relationship with his wife and sister, Bernice. So King Agrippa was very interested in this whole thing about Paul, uh, and he wanted to hear from Paul himself. Now, I think it's interesting that the Jewish king was, you know, breaking the law by being married to his sister, uh, but King Agrippa obviously knew the law and knew, uh, you know, the Jewish religion very well. This isn't going to be a private meeting, but just between King Agrippa and, and Festus and uh, uh, Paul, but it's going to be a very public meeting. In fact, it's kind of a who's who of everyone who's important uh, in the city of Caesarea. Now, this guy is King Herod Agrippa II. 
and, and, and he has a very long heritage in his family of them being aggressive towards the gospel. In fact, it was his great-grandfather, Herod the Great, who killed babies in Bethlehem, uh, hearing that the Savior was being born. And so his goal, his great-grandfather's goal at the time, was to kill all the male babies that were being born in Bethlehem and therefore kill the Savior. His uncle, uh, Herod Antipas, was the one who beheaded John the Baptist, uh, Jesus' cousin and forerunner of Jesus coming on the scene. And then uh, King Herod Agrippa II's father, uh, King Herod Agrippa I, he's the one who actually put the apostle James uh, to death and martyred him for his faith in Jesus Christ. So, so big, long family history of, of pretty significant aggression toward the gospel and uh, against any kind of uh, savior being talked about or being born into the Jewish nation. Uh, in the last few verses uh, of Acts 25, Festus tells Agrippa that Paul has appealed to the emperor Caesar, but he has nothing to write about. He said, listen, I've talked to this guy Paul. I don't know what to accuse him of. He's already appealed to Caesar, so he's going to get an audience with Caesar. Once you appeal to Caesar, uh, you're going. But, but now this governor's like, well, I just can't just send him up there with you know, like no note attached. I can't just have him go up there and Caesar go, what's he here for? What am I going to do? And he doesn't want to look like a fool wasting the emperor's time. Uh, so he's actually uh, asking uh, King Agrippa to help him to figure out uh, why this should execute Paul or even why he's being held uh, and why they can send him to Caesar somehow accused. So that's where we're at. And so we have uh, King Agrippa and his wife, sister Bernice, uh, here with uh, the new governor, Festus, and uh, many, many people around, and you've got Paul coming in now, and Paul is going to get started here talking to them. So let's pick it up in chapter 26, and we see that Paul first acknowledges Agrippa. Look in verses 1 through 3. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. This was interesting. Paul was very personal, and he acknowledged Agrippa's understanding of the Jewish culture and beliefs. We'll see in this passage that he actually uh, either speaks the king's name or says something like, O king, seven times. He wants to make clear to everybody in the room that while they are there listening, he's talking to the king. So he keeps reminding the king through this process, I'm talking to you. I know there's a lot of people around and there's a lot of people listening, but king, I'm talking to nobody but you right here, right now. So he says that to him. But then he kind of gives him this, this uh, compliment. He says, listen, I know you understand the Jewish culture, culture and beliefs. I, I'm really glad that I get to speak in front of you uh, because you know what we're going to talk about. And, and like always, Paul is really good about finding commonality. Now listen, I want to really encourage us to pick up on these uh, things that Paul does over and over again. When it comes time for us to uh, share our faith with those around us, it's really important if we can pick up on some kind of commonality. And Paul is doing that right away. He's saying, hey, listen, you know, I know you're familiar with the Jews and, and our customs and our culture and our beliefs and all that, and, and I am too, and, and we've got this commonality. 
And then Paul begins to talk, and he wants to do, he wants to review his background first thing. In verses 4 through 11, Paul reviews his background before he came to know Christ. Let's look at what it says in those, past, in those verses, verses 4 through 11. This is Paul continuing to talk. It says, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest part of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king? Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. This is not the first time Paul has talked this way. He's done it in practically every city he went into. He acknowledges again that he was among the chief persecutors of the early church. As Christianity was birthed and began to spring up and begin to move out and begin to just uh, 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 spread, Paul was among the worst when it came to persecuting them. I think it's very interesting. Because of my hope in the resurrection, which our God promised our forefathers. So he's saying, hey, a king, just so you know, the whole reason I'm standing is here is because you and I have some commonality. We have the same forefathers and we have the same hope that we have from the Old Testament writings. You see, we've got that already. We've got that. I'm standing on trial basically because I'm a good Jew is what he's saying. And we're going to see that that is the case. I'm sure that the king listened intently as Paul talked this way. Again, this brought them more commonality together. And Paul's saying, look, man, I'm not coming here with some newfangled, you know, goofy belief system. I'm not coming here with some weirdo, crazy, you know, new thing. I'm coming here because I believe in what our forefathers taught our forefathers, and what our God taught them. And that's why I'm on trial. But then Paul doesn't just review his background. He goes on to explain his conversion. He goes on to explain his conversion, which Paul does every single time. He talks about the gospel. Look what it says in verses 12 through 18. This is Paul continuing to talk. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O, o king, see, so he's talked to him again, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, 
I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul once again explains what happened on the road to Damascus. He goes into great detail again, the conversation that he and the risen Christ had, how Jesus showed himself to Paul and spoke to him. Jesus stated in that conversation that he was sending Paul to the Jews and the Gentiles and to help them turn from darkness to light and from Satan to God. Now, folks, this is a a, a crystal clear doctrine and theology point that I think we get confused in our real lives sometimes. I, I think we know it. I think if there were a test on it, some of us would pass that with flying colors. But I think as we live out our daily lives, I think this gets a little bit shaky, maybe a little bit... Uh, you know, uh, not quite so clear. Paul's saying, listen, Jesus sent me uh, for the purpose of turning people from darkness to light. Those are two opposite things. And by the way, there is no spiritual dimmer. It's a switch. It's either darkness, oh, sorry, darkness or light. I look like I did my own electrical work there, okay? It's either darkness or light. There's no dimmer switch that happens. You're either totally and completely isolated from God by darkness, or you are totally and completely connected to God through light. Then he goes on to say, not only darkness and light, this illustration, but you're either connected to God or to Satan. Now, I think... Uh, we like to kind of think in our minds sometimes that some of our friends or neighbors, some of our loved ones, maybe even some of our children or our parents are kind of sort of connected to God. We like to think that they're pretty good people. And I go to funerals sometimes uh, of, of people who have openly rejected Christ, but they've been really good people. And I hear Christians say, I'm just glad they're in a better place. No, they're not. No, they aren't. I know we like to feel those things, and we don't like to probably embrace this idea that people actually die and go to a place called hell and are forever separated from God. I know it's not a fun thing to think. But folks, it's clear here. People are either in darkness or they are in light, and there is no in-between. They're either children of God or they're children of Satan. Now, if you remember, there were a few times where Jesus even said that to his disciples. Earthly, you're so worldly, you're so self-centered, you're so thinking about yourself, you're really connected to your father, the devil. That's really what he's saying to them. Folks, when we are born again, we are born spiritually into God's family. It's a spiritual birth. Uh, The reality is every one of us has a a birth certificate, and on that birth certificate there is a, a time of day. 
And, and a minute before that, you were not yet born, according to your birth certificate. And the minute after, you were completely born, according to your birth certificate. And it's like that with our spiritual lives. We are either completely... Now listen, I understand that we can think in terms of, let's say that on this side is darkness and on this side is light. I understand that we can think, well, this person was really far from the line. But their understanding has increased and they're getting close to the line. They're getting closer and closer. And, and they have a little more light in their lives. And no, this isn't a dimmer that gets... Maybe they're getting closer to understanding. But the reality is, folks, if somebody dies this far away from God or this far away from God, it doesn't matter. They are far away from God. Until they cross this line of faith, until they say, I acknowledge the fact that I'm a sinner, I can't do anything about that myself, and I accept what Jesus did on the cross to pay for my sins, that's the moment the switch comes on. And they enter and are birthed into God's family. Folks, Paul was making it clear, you're either in darkness or light. And I think we need to, while we, we acknowledge that in our minds, and I think we would probably say that I agree with that, I agree the Bible teaches that, I think sometimes we don't think those ways uh, with the people that we know and love. I think we should. I think we should. I think the people that we know and love who are really good people, who maybe even are very religious people and they are a part of another faith or another religion or whatever, and they're really good people, but they haven't crossed this line of faith, we need to understand, folks, that they are as far away from God as if they were clear over here. There is no eternity graded on the curve. It is pass or fail. And we need to not just understand it, but we need to think that way while we're interacting with people that we know. So Paul explains his conversion. He says, hey, there was a time when I was far away from God, but when Jesus came to me on the Damascus Road, man, everything switched. Everything changed. I gave my life, my heart to him, and everything changed. And so then he goes on to talk about his ministry. Now, before I read that passage, I want you to look at, at this for a minute. You know, we teach people here all the time, when you're sharing your testimony, there's three parts of it. Share what happened in your life before you came to know Christ, how you came to know Christ, and how your life has changed after Christ. It's almost as if Paul went to one of our seminars, you know, or, or maybe we got our material from him. I think it's probably more accurate, okay? But he's doing this. This is, this is the right way to share our testimony. So let's look at his ministry, what he says. Therefore, O King Agrippa, he, he talks to him again, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both the small and great saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul tells what's taken place in his life since he gave his life to Christ, since that day on the Damascus Road. He said, listen, God's protected me and given me the opportunity to testify to both our people, the Jews, and also to the Gentiles. And then I really like what he says here. This quote that he says is, Prophets and Moses, by the way, that you agree with, that you believe in, 
said would come to pass. That the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, we would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. He's saying, look, King, you, you know this is true. You know that you've been taught this. You, you know that this is in uh, the Old Testament. Didn't call it the Old Testament at the time because they didn't know there was a new one coming. You know this is in the scriptures. You've known this since, since you were taught as a little boy. And he's saying, God has protected me as I've done this. Paul shares his ministry. He shares how he has uh, shared the truth of Jesus and really how uh, Christ has fulfilled the prophecies that the Jews uh, had agreed with and, and understood. Now, this is not unlike all the other places Paul has gone. In almost every single place, uh, Paul has gone and he has said, hey, here's my testimony. We don't see him debating the great theological uh, you know, debates in life. We see him telling everybody, hey, this is what happened to me. I was against Christianity. In fact, I was the worst. I was the worst of the worst of the worst. And then Jesus showed up and changed my life. I wasn't looking for him. I wasn't, I wasn't praying for him. I wasn't seeking him. In fact, I was persecuting him, according to him. But he showed up, changed my life. And now everything has turned around. Everything has turned around. You know, I, I, want us to, I want us to really get this. I want us to really get this. Because uh, uh, Paul knows that he is an expert on this topic. In fact, Paul was the world's foremost expert on how God had affected his life. But I want you to know something. Every single one of you in here is the world's foremost expert on how God has changed your life. You know, if I tell you about my childhood and how my parents raised me and how they disciplined me, I'm an expert in that. Not only because I got a lot of reinforcement over the years, but, but, but because I was there. I witnessed it firsthand. I'm an expert in it. I'm an expert in how I came to know Christ as my Savior because I was there. I, I heard a, a former Hell's Angel pastor uh, tell me how sin was all the same. And as a 12-year-old boy, I realized, oh my goodness, in God's eyes, I'm a Hell's Angel. I, I, gotta, I gotta fix this. I gotta do something. I, I, rem I remember that vaguely, but I've told the story since I was 12 so many times. Man, I'm an expert at it, and I was there. I am the world's foremost expert in how God deals in my life now because I'm a part of it inside and out. Folks, I want you to really get from the book of Acts, if nothing else. Yeah, there's stuff about church planting. Yeah, there's stuff about setting up leadership in the church. Yeah, there's all kinds of really good things in the book of Acts. But if two more weeks come up and you, you don't get anything else from the book of Acts, one of the things I want you to walk away with is, I am the world's foremost expert at my testimony. I know what my life was like before I came to know Christ as my Savior. I know exactly how I gave my life to Christ when the switch came on, and here's how God has affected my life afterwards and I want you to tell it every single ch chance you get I want us to spend the rest of our time today looking at the responses of Festus 
and of King Agrippa. If you remember, in chapter 24, Felix was okay with the gospel. He was friendly towards the gospel. He wanted to talk about the gospel. He enjoyed learning more about the gospel, but he never gave his life to the gospel. Look how Festus responds to Paul in Acts chapter 26, verses 24 and 25. And as he, Paul, was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Felix, or Festus. See, I get mixed up too. But I'm speaking true and rational words. You see, Paul's saying, I'm, I'm the foremost, foremost expert on my testimony. I'm not crazy at all. I know this to be true. And by the way, who's, who, can, who can disagree with me? Now, if we talk about a deep theological belief, now we can have maybe differing opinions on that, and we can debate that and all of that. But when I share with you how I came to know Christ as a 12-year-old boy and how I prayed by the side of my bed and asked Jesus to come in and change my life, and he did, you try to argue with me all day, you're never going to win that argument. You just won't. You can't. Because you weren't there. Festus says, Paul, you're, you're just crazy. Dude, you're, you're saying things that you're just nuts. And Paul responds very kindly but sharply. I'm not crazy at all. And then I like that most excellent Festus. Gives him a little compliment there. I'm speaking the truth. I'm speaking what is the truth. And folks, we need to not back down. When we share our testimony with people and they're like, oh, that's nuts. That didn't really happen to you. you get well, I'm just telling you that's the truth. You can like it or you can lump it. I, I could care less. But I'm telling you, I was there. I've experienced it. And it's the truth. Festus, we never see uh, ever again, uh, Festus in the Word of God or even in history, uh, having any other response but this one, believing that Paul was out of his mind. But now I want us to look at this, the rest of this chapter. I, I think this is perhaps one of the saddest passages in the entire Bible. If you just want to read a passage and just go, wow, that's just sad. I think this is the passage. Let's read it. Because we see here in this passage that King Agrippa almost receives Christ. Look at verses 26 through 32. For the king knows about these things. By the way, Paul's still speaking. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I, except for these chains, then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting there, or with them. And when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, This man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free 
if he had not appealed to Caesar. I think this is sad because of King Agrippa's response. Paul says to him, King, do you believe the prophets? You're a Jew. You're committed to understanding and knowing our, our, our religion, our ways. Do you believe the prophets? And then he says, I see you believe him. You, you believe. You, King, you know this is true. You know that what I am saying, what I am speaking is the truth. And Agrippa responds with this statement or question. In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Now, by the way, in all honesty, this is a very difficult um, question or sentence to understand in the original uh, language. Uh, It's very hard to translate, and we don't really know if it's a question or a statement. Uh, But the king is saying something along the lines of, it would either take a short time for you to persuade me, or do you think it would just take a short time to persuade me? It's kind of hard to know exactly what he's saying. But, but part of the understanding of it is to read it in context and to see what exactly Paul says afterwards, because that gives us a little bit of understanding. Is he stating that he would be persuaded in a short time? Or is he just verbally, outwardly wondering if he would be persuaded in a short time? We don't really know. But Paul's response is clear. He says, listen, King, whether it would take a short time or a long time, I wish that everyone would be like I am, a Christian. So the inference is probably that the king is insinuating that, man, I'm, it probably wouldn't take much for me to cross over the line. It, it probably wouldn't take much more yeah, you're right. The, uh, we, agree with the, we agree on the prophets. We agree on the prophecies. We agree that the Christ is coming. We agree that the Christ will raise from the dead. Paul, I'm right about here. And I could actually cross this line pretty quick. You know, sometimes I even have this conversation with people using my hands as we talk about the gospel. Because they'll say, well, I've been coming to church and learning more and more about God. Okay, that could be on this side. That could be on this side. Well, I've prayed more and more and more. Well, that could be on this side and that could be on this side. The question is, have you crossed over and given your life to Christ? And the king is saying, man, it wouldn't take much. I'm I'm really close. Probably wouldn't take much more time. And Paul says, you know what, king? Whether it takes a little time or a lot of time or a long time, I'll invest it in you. I'll spend it with you because I want everybody I am with Jesus. I want everybody here to experience this relationship with Christ that I have. He's basically saying, I don't care how long it takes. I'll just keep talking until you believe. Now here's the sad part. Even though King Agrippa knows intellectually that Paul is right, And even though Paul knows Agrippa, knows Paul is right, Festus, Agrippa, and Bernice all get up and walk out of the room without receiving Christ as their Savior. They don't respond. They don't cross over the line of faith. They stay right there. 
and then they get outside the room and all they talk about is Paul's legal issue. Well, you know, Paul hasn't really done anything wrong or worthy of death or even imprisonment, actually. In fact, if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, we'd just cut him loose today. But now he's appealed to Caesar, he has to go, which I think is all part of God's plans to get Paul in front of Caesar. But here's the point. I think King Agrippa believed everything in his mind, but he didn't ever embrace it with his heart. You know, many times when I'm sharing the gospel with somebody and I talk about uh, this exact thing, I'll, I'll put my phone out on the table at, you know, Perkins or Panera or wherever we're at, and I'll say, if I gave you my phone, when would it become yours? And I said, well, I guess when you give it to me. I, I said, really? So if you got up and walked out of the room, out of the restaurant, and left it there on the table, would it really be yours? You know, oh, I, oh, I guess it wouldn't be. So when does it really become yours? And they'll think for a minute and say, well, I guess it's when I reach out and take it. Right. Because if you just leave it sitting there on the table and walk off, you never can make a call with it. You can never play a game on it. You can never uh, do anything with my phone. But that moment that your hand touches it and it becomes yours, now it belongs to you. And it's a lot like that with receiving Christ as our Savior. There are a lot of people in fact, probably some people in this room. There are a lot of people who intellectually acknowledge that Jesus existed. In fact, we sometimes uh, promote this word belief. Oh, I believe in Jesus. I believe he, he lived. I believe he probably died for being a good guy and doing good things. He was martyred for that. I believe he did such good things that I should probably try to emulate him and do good things like him. But that's totally and completely different than saying I not only believe it with my mind, but I'm making a decision in my heart to accept what he did on the cross to pay for my sins, knowing there's no other way to bridge the gap. And I accept that and embrace him as my savior for the rest of my life. That's a totally different thing, folks. And it's important as we share the gospel with people, if they say, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, tell me what that means. D describe that for me. Well, I, you know, I, I, I've, I've grown up in this culture. I've, I've seen, uh, you know, at Christmas time, I've seen Jesus born in a manger. And, and, and at Easter time, I've seen, you know, him up on a cross. And so I know he, he was born into this really humble beginning. And, and I believe that he lived and died. That's not enough. That's not biblical salvation, folks. That's, that's hey, I'm getting close to understanding, but still in darkness. As we think about our own salvation and as we share with our friends and neighbors and those whom we love how to, to know Jesus Christ as their Savior, it's important, folks, that we uh, talk in terms of crossing that line of faith, of giving your life and your heart to this, this, this Savior, this Christ who paid the price for our sins. And anything short of that is real close to the line. The Bible talks about on, on the last day when we all stand before God that there will be a lot of surprised people. Have you ever thought about who the surprised people are? There's never any surprised lost people. There's never any people that go, oh man, I, I thought I was living my life for myself and now you're telling me I knew Jesus all this time? That's really cool. Man, I'm so, I'm so glad that I fell into that somehow. 
Those aren't the surprised people. Who are the surprised people? The religious people. Every last one of them is a religious person. They say, but look at all the things I did for you. Look at all the stuff I did, all religious things. And Jesus says, you got to take off. I don't even know who you are. See, that's the difference with knowing who he is and knowing him. I think it's important that we look at our own lives and make sure that we really know him. And then as we share the gospel with others, it's important that we make this delineation between knowing about Jesus and really, truly knowing Jesus as our Savior. Unfortunately, King Agrippa and Festus never made it, as far as we know, as far as history and both the scriptures provide, never crossed that line of faith. I think we should think about our friends and neighbors and loved ones as we think about this continuum and that line. Remember, salvation, coming to know Christ is not like a dimmer switch. It's always an on-off switch. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy and for your grace. Father, we acknowledge to you again that we are sinners, that by ourselves there is nothing good in us. But only through knowing your son, Jesus Christ, can we tap into a relationship with you. Father, I thank you for your love in sending him. I thank you for his obedience to the cross that provides that way for us. Father, help us to really uh, clearly keep this thought in our minds that everyone is either in darkness or light. They're not in a dim room. Help us to be motivated by that and motivated by your mercy and grace for us to share that with others. God, help us to be ready to share our testimony and how you have changed our life in a moment's notice, anywhere, anytime, anyplace. God, use me, use this church, use the people here to proclaim the gospel through the testimony of our lives and our words in Parkville and all around the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.